Welcome to the Building a Story Brand podcast, where we believe if you confuse, you'll lose. Noise is the enemy, and creating a clear message is the best way to grow your business. I'm your host, Donald Miller. I'm joined by my co-host, J.J. Peterson. Hi, Don. J.J., we're going to play a game. Okay. I'm going to say something. It's like an association. If I say something, okay. you tell me what you think. Okay. Just stream of consciousness, go. Oh, okay. You ready? <laughs> yeah. Trickle-down economics. Ew. Okay, but why? Why ooh? That was honestly my first... And my why? First... I'm curious as to why, because I think um, maybe a lot of people might feel that way. Yeah, because I feel like in my gut, when you say trickle-down economics, I go, oh, that doesn't work. <laughs> like that the rich get richer and that trickle down doesn't actually happen in general. Now, I know that in my own life, <laughs> I've actually been the, what I would say, recipient of trickle down <laughs> economics of where when people who have been further ahead in the game, like in any kind of space, whether yeah. that's even in education or business that have been further ahead and have succeeded and then have brought me on to work with them, I would say I have often been personally recipient of trickle-down economics. But when so you it's, say it's that So it's a conflicting relationship, yeah, because right? I, and trickle-down economics, yeah. to be fair, is a derogatory term about supply-side economics. Yeah, yeah. It's what the opposition would call it. Yeah. When you first say that, my gut is, ew, ooh, I don't know how I feel about that. And having grown up in a Republican home yeah. and having grown up defending whatever, supply-side yeah. economics or Reaganomics, or, you know, my family did at least, really not fully understanding it, I was for it. We, it was what our tribe did, what our tribe yeah. thought. Then came back, did some time at Reed College, never walked away from it, but began to question it a little bit. And then working with uh, an economic think tank, you know, just kind of as a messaging guy, they ran some things by me, and I began to understand a little bit more about how the system works. Yeah, it was my introduction through studying trickle down economics a little bit to how you can massively affect enormous numbers of people by slowly turning and even slightly turning these economic dials. You tax these people a little more, tax these people a little bit less, turn down government spending here, and. Pretty soon, you can create like a carburetor of an engine, yeah. this robust thing. Yeah. But there will always be social inequality. There yeah. will always be this disparity between some wealthy and some poor. Some for necessary reasons, because you just can't get it perfect. Yeah. And some because there are some very wealthy people who are jerks, and there are some very poor people who are lazy. I mean, that's just true. It's when we get into these blanket statements, all poor when people we, are lazy and yeah. all rich people are jerks, that... You paint everybody with a brush. And it, yeah, and it makes true. us dismiss something where there's some elements of truth to it. Yeah. And the reason I bring this up is because, one, it's important. It affects economic policy. It affects how much money everybody listening to this makes. Yeah. The middle class used to make under Nixon about 63000 a year. Just, I mean, 83000 a year under mm -hmm. Nixon. Really? 83000 a year, adjusted for inflation. Yeah, yeah. Today, $63,000 a year. The middle class. The middle class. So yeah. $20,000 less per family is where we've progressed. Interesting. And there are just some slight dials that you can turn to change that. Yeah. And it's fascinating to me. I bring all this up because today's interview is with Art Laffer. He is the father yeah. of supply-side economics. <laughs> he crazy? created it. Yes. And, and you got a chance to talk to him. I got a geek chance to sit down in his office with him. He is fun. He is charming. He's 70-something, and he looks 50-something. Uh -huh. He's full of energy. <laughs> he's surrounded by young, vibrant people doing awesome work. Yeah. And he's brilliant. Yeah. He's almost too brilliant to capture in an interview because <laughs> half the time I felt like, uh, I, I caught the third word. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I loved getting to know him. But here's the thing that I think is going to blow your mind. Yeah. He, of course, got known under Reagan. Mm -hmm. He was with somebody, I can't remember, governor of California running against George H.W. Bush and lost. But he was an economic advisor and then worked his way up, and then finally he's in the Reagan White House. Yeah. He is the guy who created Reaganomics. And to some degree, I always thought, you know, Reagan, I, I love Reagan as, as a guy who's a Republican. And I say I'm a Republican, I'm really independent. Yeah, I'm a Republican are. who also votes for you Democrats yep. because I'm a pragmatist. I'm mm -hmm. like, that's stupid. That won't work. Yeah. You know, this guy's got something to work. Let's just do that. And I don't get up in arms about social issues that much. Yeah. You know, I'm really just looking at economic policy. Anyway, so I don't want to call myself a Republican, but I liked Reagan. The only problem I ever had with Reagan was the debt went crazy. Yeah. It just went crazy. The national debt went up. And Art Laffer explains it. It made me go, not that it was okay, but that this is why, according to him, it made the country explode and expand. Yeah. And all sorts of people had a lot more money. 
And then he explains that one of his favorite presidents was Bill Clinton. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, wait a second. I'm sorry, wait. Yeah. I thought you were a diehard Reagan. You know, guy. Reagan. And he's like, no. He said, loved Reagan, loved Clinton, didn't like the economic policies of George W. Bush, didn't like the economic policies of Barack Obama, loved the economic policies of Donald Trump. And, you know, that sort of thing, to me, I realize to our audience, they're kind of going, wait, which tribe are you for? Whose team are you on? Are you, you know, that's not how I think. Yeah. I think that guy gets it. Yeah. That guy gets it. Because all of the crap that these politicians are saying to divide people into tribes is what they do to get elected. Yeah. What they actually do in office, that's where you really figure out their worldview. And the economy exploded under Bill Clinton. And he balanced the budget. Yeah. The economy exploded under Ronald Reagan. The economy inflated under George W. Bush. And according to Art Laffer, it grew way too slowly under Barack Obama and is currently exploding under Donald Trump. I mean, love him or hate any of these guys. Yeah. That tells you something about Art Laffer and that he would even be public about that. Yeah. Having served Nixon and Reagan and informed Bush and informed Trump that he would be public about, I voted for Clinton twice. I'm proud of it. Yeah. He was a great, (laughs) he keeps saying it. He was a great president. (laughs) I just, I don't know. I like that. Yeah, yeah. And the other thing I wanted to kind of highlight in the interview is that Laffer only cares about the numbers. He only cares about more people having the opportunity to make more money. And the best way to help poverty is to grow the middle class. The one thing about poverty in America, there is a lot of poverty in America. Mm -hmm. Nothing that compares at all to second and third world countries. Well, how did that happen? Well, where are all the people that would be poor if we didn't have these economic classes? You know where they are? They're in the middle class. Yeah. And so we don't look at our huge middle class and say, you guys, that's a massive success story. We actually have a very small demographic of people who are very, very poor comparatively. The way to increase it, Art would say, is not to give poor people some money. It's actually to increase the middle class and invite them into the middle class. And then the government needs to leave everything alone. There are some things that I would contend with. I think he's way lighter on regulation. You know, regulation is this evil, bad word. And he would say, no, we should have regulated Wall Street War in 2008. We should be regulating pharmaceutical companies because the opioid, part of the opioid epidemic is because government regulation dropped the ball and pharmaceutical companies were able to do what they did. Yeah. They have to take some responsibility for that. So you can't just go, I'm against regulation because regulation hurts business. Regulation also saves lives. Yeah. And Art Laffer gets into that. Anyway, if you've ever been curious about the dials and levers that make the economy work, you're going to love today's episode. And if you just want to listen to the radio and understand why NAFTA matters, why trade wars matter, he has an amazing series of thoughts uh, on China. Because I was like, China's going to pass us. And he was like, so? Who cares? It's great yeah. for America. And yeah. I'm like, what are you talking about? <laughs> yeah. Anyway, he's just a, he's a genius. Yeah. And I got to sit down and talk to him, just have enormous respect for him. He certainly has a lot to offer still to this day and is doing so every day in his office here in Nashville, Tennessee. But I especially knew you would love this interview, yeah. today because I know you've been trying to figure out supply-side economics. And- I stay awake at night thinking about it. Stay awake at night. <laughs> and how you feel about these things. Yeah. And uh, I know many of our listeners like JJ also stay awake at night. It's a long conversation, yeah. and I didn't want to cut very much but of it. But it's interesting because especially the words you're saying, when you say trickle-down economics, and yeah. you say and I, even I, like Reaganomics I intentionally used or, a derogatory term. Yeah. When you use those terms, I think they immediately, especially when you bring up some of that language that has been branded right, right, by right, one right. side or the other that says, this is what this means, there are gut reactions. And so yep. you, before we even went on, you said, okay, I'm just going to ask you a question. I want your gut reaction. I need you to be honest. And that was my gut reaction. Yeah, was, it is for a lot of people. And, and part of it is I'm not, I don't want to engage in that conversation because there's so much political stuff attached to it. And yet it really is so important to at least understand how our economy works, why things are the way they are and what influences that the growth or shrinking of that. And for me, I'm actually not super informed about that. And so I'm, that's why I'm so this excited. This is an about education. Inver- yeah, it's I'm an education. so excited about this interview. And I would also encourage listeners as you're listening, you will get lost and you'll sort of come back to the surface and go, okay, I understood that. 
Yeah. I was experiencing that as I was talking to yeah, him. Yeah. I'm like, okay, I don't understand. Okay, now he's got it. I understand that. Yep. And you can hear some of the frustration with between us because he's going so fast. I'm not following. <laughs> yeah. And he's just kind of yeah. looking at me like, are you with me? Are you with me? And I'm just dazed over a little bit. But to me, it is fascinating. And it matters. It matters because... If you can get the middle class $20,000 more, of course, everybody listening to this would have $20,000 more, but imagine as business owners, yeah. if every one of your customers had $20,000 more, yeah. what would they buy from you? Yeah. It's massive. Yeah. And he even addresses the fact that there are rich people who have too much money. Yeah. And so, of course, I would say, well, wouldn't the government step in and sort of somehow return some of that money into the economy, creating a circulation economy, which is my term. I coined that term. We didn't get to talk about that. But he had a fascinating idea of why the government shouldn't do that. And it's so... I can't wait for people to It's actually hilarious. It's actually really funny. Anyway, this is an Education 101, Economics 101 interview with the father of supply-side economics, who is going to surprise you. If you have labeled this guy, first of all, he's going to step right into that label sometimes, and then he's going to shock you. (laughs) Yeah. Because he's not who you think he is. He's not who you think he is. I was just honored. And I had actually come straight from New York City... Arts in Nashville, when I came straight from New York City, where I was speaking to 150 investment bankers, global investment bankers, and Eric Conter, former House Majority Leader, also did a panel on exactly what's going on in global economics because of foreign policy in the Trump administration. And so this stuff was on my mind. I just felt like it was a god rolling out the red carpet. Just go, hey, Don, I want you to hear from somebody who understands a little more about this. It's an education for me, and I'm grateful that uh, listeners want to come along, and at least for this geek part of my personal journey, (laughs) understanding how this stuff works. I'm not going to wait any longer because we're going to play the whole long interview. Sometimes we cut like 20 minutes out of these things. I don't want to cut 20 minutes out of these things. Let me say a little bit more about art. Yale, then Stanford, then University of Chicago, then back to Stanford all the way through his Ph.D., in the Nixon White House, in the Reagan White House, started his own firm. Unbelievable. Bunches of hedge funds, paid tons of money to get a monthly report that he writes about the economy. I walk into his office and there's all these African artifacts everywhere. Uh-huh. I said, Art, right, what is this? He goes, Don, I just collect things. It's my habit. I collect African artifacts. I collect antiques. I collect trees. And I said, what do you mean you collect trees? He goes, I've, I've got a thousand acres in Kentucky and I'm trying to get every tree that will grow in that climate on that property, so oh I can walk. I didn't even meet. <laughs> How can you not love that guy? How can you not love that guy? Anyway, we don't talk about trees. We talk about the economy. Here's my conversation with Art Laffer. Art, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thank all right, you. we've got to start. JJ and I just introduced you. Uh, first of all, it's an honor to be with you. I've been reading about your stuff since I, without even I knowing it. I, I'm not that old. <laughs> <laughs> well, you don't look that well, old. You, you certainly don't well, look I, old I, at I, all. I've got a face for radio. All that to say, at a very young age, you were already influencing and having an impact, right? Uh, Thank and so you. it was a while ago. But we've got to start because anybody who uh, maybe is probably under 30 or 40 may not know or be able to explain they've heard of it. What is the Laffer curve? Well, the Laffer curve is just a simple representation of what happens when you raise taxes on revenues. Right. And, you know, when you raise tax rates, it's Mm -hmm. true. You collect more money per dollar of tax base. But also when you raise tax rates, you reduce the tax base because people will do less of that activity. Mm -hmm. And these two effects, which I call the arithmetic effect and the economic effect, always work in opposite directions. Mm -hmm. And sometimes when you raise tax rates, you collect more revenues. And sometimes when you raise tax rates, you collect less revenues. For example, imagine we had a tax rate at 101%. Right. Uh, so that every time you went to the office, instead of getting a check, you got a bill. Right. How long would you work? Not now, at all. What would be the revenues for the federal government? Zero. Well, they'd be enormous for about five minutes. It'd be until they stole everything. Until they <laughs> That's stole right. Everything. And then they go to zero. Right. Now you start lowering that tax rate from 101% to 91% right. to 81 And what you'll see is some people start to go back to work and tax revenues will start increasing. Right. You, you with me? The idea is to try to find that magical number. Well, let me go to the bottom one, yep. sir, first. Go ahead. At zero tax rates, what happens to tax revenues? You got no government. Yep. You got lots of output, but no government. Now, what happens when you start raising tax rates from zero to 1% to 5% to 10%? What happens is now you'll start collecting some revenues. And even though the output will shrink a little bit, you'll still collect more revenues. And what there is is there's a relationship right. between tax rates and total revenues where it's zero at 100% and zero at 1%. And as you raise rates from 0% and lower them from 100%, that curve forms and you get two areas. The neat thing about the curve is that there are always two tax rates 
that collect the same amount of revenue. Hmm. One is the high tax rate in the prohibitive range, and one is the low tax rate in the normal range. And if you've got any tax rate in the prohibitive range, if you cut tax rates, you will actually collect more revenue. Now, who isn't in favor of that? Now, explain that again. You say there's two that produce the same amount exactly. of... Exactly. When you got that curve, now just think of that sort of me, take, pre- take me, me back. my tummy. Yeah. Think so of my profile. Are you talking about like the 50s and 60s when taxes were as high as 90% on the Yeah, now when they were as low as 28% on the Reagan, total tax revenues in the federal government were about the same as a share of GDP. Right. Oh, isn't that interesting? The only difference is people were happier. Right, I mean that. But much happier with twenty eight percent tax than they are with ninety two percent taxes, of course. Yeah, and that's true of everything. So, what I tried to do is bring in this feedback effect of tax rates into the professional discussion. You're, as you'll notice, the literature is called yeah. still the Laffer curve everywhere, and I brought it into government as well because they were always assuming that if we raise tax rates by ten percent, we'll get ten percent more revenues. Not true. You may get 9% more revenues, but you won't get 10%. And and this is an important thing, I think, for the listeners to understand, because, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's not that you are for low taxes. You are for a vibrant, robust economy and people being rewarded. And taxes are just a thing you deal with in order to get that. so Of course, that's exactly what taxes are. I don't want everything being zero taxes. Right. Of course, You we want need more your, people having more money. You want the middle class growing. You want people want in poverty invited into the middle way. class. All taxes are bad, all right? All of them are bad, except for maybe on cigarettes, alcohol, and firearms, or if you're one of those people. All taxes are bad because Is this they, a subjective statement, or no, you no, objectively no. believe all, all taxes, taxes are bad? All taxes destroy the product being taxed. Gotcha. Let me use it this way yeah. with you, just for a second. We tax speeders on the freeway. Why do we do that? You mean like with a ticket? Yeah. To prohibit speeding. To yeah, to get them to, to stop, stop speeding. Yeah. We tax tobacco smokers. Why do get we do that? Get them to stop smoking. Yeah, now why do we tax income? <laughs> now why do we tax job creators, employment? Is it, why nece- do we is it tax a necessary pro- evil? Well, no, yes, it is. What we do is all taxes are bad, except for those ones on speeders and things. Which are I'm, they bad? I mean, our taxes are buying something. No, that's tax revenues. I'm talking about tax rates. Oh, we gotcha. put a tax rate on earners, not be, to get them to stop earning income, but to collect the revenues we need to run government. Right. All right. And we do that for employers as well. We do that for people who make wonderful products at low cost and have lots and lots of profits. We do it to collect the revenues to run government. But don't think for a moment that those taxes on those people don't have the same consequences as they do on speeders and smokers. Hmm. They do. Let me just share my personal experience. You know, we grew up really poor. I had a book when I was 30 takeoff. That's the first time I ever saw money in any large amount, 30. And I was shocked at how much of it I had to give away. I mean, suddenly I was writing checks. And today, I write checks for 50% of every dollar that I make in now you understand to the government. Exactly. It makes me wonder, do I want this company to go big? Because it seems like a pain to be able to have to keep giving more money to the government, or do I just want to be satisfied well, with right. where I am? Which, now, now everybody would go, well, Don, why don't you just be satisfied where you are? If I were incentivized by the government, if I could keep more of this revenue, I would hire 5, 10, 15, and who knows, maybe eventually 5,000 more people. Let so that's just, what you're talking about, yeah, right? But, but even more so. Yeah. Because all taxes are bad, and they are. What you want to do is collect your revenues in the least damaging fashion possible. Mitigate the evil here. You want to do, you know, all taxes are bad, but what you want to do is tax less bad taxes more than more bad taxes, and which is really comes out to be a low-rate, broad-based, flat tax. You want the lowest possible tax rate on the broadest top possible tax base, so you provide people with the least incentives to evade, avoid, or otherwise not report taxable income, mm-hmm. and you give them the least places to where they can put their income and avoid taxes. Yeah. So you want a low rate, broad. Then what you want to do is want to spend your money in the most beneficial fashion. All right? Now, what happens is when the benefits from the last dollar spent are a higher than the damage caused by the last dollar of taxes collected, you we stop already. That's where government should be. Any larger government than that is bad. Any smaller government than that is bad. That is exactly where government so is not, the so you're servant saying, of the you're economy. saying even the amount of revenue that a government brings in should actually also moderate the size of the government. Yes. I've never heard that before. Well, and let me just tell you, I mean, and I don't mean— So in other words, if you can't do it with 28%, you can't do it. 
Yeah. Or is I, I'm making no, up a number. No, you're right. You're exactly right. I was just giving a talk in Casablanca to the taxing authorities in sub-Saharan Africa where they don't have, and all they want to do is know how to get more revenues. And they've destroyed their countries completely. I asked them, what does the, who owns the highways? Well, the government. Who owns the power lines? The government. Who owns water? Who owns water? And their government owns everything. There's no everything. business there to tax no, anymore. No, so everyone who's worth anything in those countries leaves. And all they do is have these people chasing down, trying to get the last penny out of these people. What you really want to make sure you do is run government efficiently and make sure it does what it's supposed to do and not go any further. Let me ask you this. I want to explain to our listeners why I think this is important. When I read your stuff and when I hear you talk, it reminds me of a car I owned. The first car I ever owned was a Datsun 510. And I used to have to go tinker with the carburetor all the time to get that thing to run. You had to put just enough gas, just enough oxygen. If you didn't do that, you were clunking down the freeway and you're probably on the side of the freeway. That's what you're talking about. And if you don't think this I use is, that exact example in my book on well, the maybe that's, why, maybe that's why I use it. Well, <laughs> I use, it's, it's called parasitic leakages. Okay. And so when you put, if you look at horsepower at the wheels, where you're actually driving the car, you've yeah. got leakages going from the engine to the drive shaft, to the universal joint, to the back axle, you know, all of that. That's exactly what you're talking about. You've got to get and just the right balance. And you're losing efficiency. And you want to make sure you incorporate all of that in the government considerations. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not that we're anti-government. I'm not anti-government. I'm anti-government when it's too big, and I'm pro-government when it's too small. And you know, you need government. And it's not because you're anti-authoritarian. It's because you're pro-life in the sense of vibrancy and robust economy and the ability of freedom of people to buy things and raise kids. and When welfare payments are so high that they cause people to be on welfare, I think you've gone too far. Then you're actually hurting people That's exactly because you're right. enabling but you're, but you're and emboldening it. poverty. Yes, but you're always doing it, professing to try to help them with more taxes to help the poor. You know, the, the best form of welfare, as John F. Kennedy put it, is still a good, high-paying job. And there's no alternative people, to economic People growth. have asked me, they said, Don, what would you do about poverty? And I said, I'd grow the middle class. Well, just grow because the economy. You, because people who are in poverty should be invited into the middle class and they should but have more money. But I wouldn't worry about classes, please. I mean, I love poor people. But that's people. a reality. Want, yeah, but I love poor people. I want them to be richer. I love the middle class. I want them to be richer. I love rich people. I want them to be richer. I want everyone to be more prosperous. And it's not a matter of picking winners inside. That's not government's role. Government's role is to provide an environment so that everyone can achieve and be the person he or she can be. When we talk about this stuff, to the people listening, they are essentially the probably upper middle class, people who own small companies, maybe making a quarter million, those kinds of things. Under Nixon, adjusted for inflation, the average middle class family made about 83,000. Today, it's 63,000 adjusted for inflation. They're making less money than they used to make. So when we're talking about the stuff we're talking about, we're actually talking about getting you, trying to get you, the listener, about $20,000 more if we can just turn these levers a little bit, get the carburetor running a little bit differently. Now, imagine you say $20,000 would be nice, but almost everybody listening to this podcast owns a business. Let me ask you this question. If for every one of your customers had $20,000 more, how much more money do you think you'd have? So when we're talking about adjusting these levers, we're talking about potentially the reason you're not really rich is because these levers aren't adjusted correctly. Yeah, but is that I, a fair I, statement? Yes, it, it is a fair statement. What I beg you to do is not try to get too deep into the minutia because, frankly, as smart as you are, you're not as smart as all these entrepreneurs working there. What you want to have as government is being simple, not complex. Out of the way. You want a, you want a tax form that is a low-rate probably so everyone pays the same rate on total income. You don't have exemptions, deductions, exclusions, and credits, and all this other nonsense that politicians who think they can micromanage the economy put in. Because that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to adjust the carburetor with these exemptions and yeah. write-offs. And they shouldn't and... be. They should be trying to earn income. If you've got a 50% tax rate, you're going to spend 50% of your time trying to figure out how to reduce your taxes and 50% of your time trying to make more money. You shouldn't be doing that. You should spend none of your time worrying about your taxes and trying to make more money. That's what we should be trying to achieve in this economy. Okay, my listeners You follow me on that. I do. I absolutely do. Good. I think your listeners will follow me even... I mean, they understand this stuff. And they know how much time they worry about regulations. They worry about government spending and how to game the system, about taxes, where they locate. I mean, why is everyone moving from high-tax states to low-tax states? Duh. They shouldn't be doing that. High tax states shouldn't exist. 
I mean, they should be trying to keep their people too. But look at Connecticut. Look at New Jersey. Look at Michigan. Oregon. Look at Illinois. Oregon. Look at yeah. Illinois. Uh, when I moved from Oregon, my company was even much, much, much smaller at the time. When I moved from Oregon to Tennessee, I saved a hundred grand. With that, I hired somebody I, who bought a house. I moved from Rancho Santa Fe, California to here. And I bought my house with my first year's tax savings. <laughs> and I, my business, it doesn't matter where my business is. Some listeners are wondering, are you yep. a libertarian? So I have to ask. You know, that libertarian's much That's a more, category. I know it's a yeah, category. Yeah, it's a category, and it's a fine category. But it's, I'm for economic growth. Period. Whatever yeah. it takes. Yeah. And if it takes a big state, I love it. If it takes free enterprise, I love it. I believe it takes free enterprise and limited government. And a low rate, broad based, flat tax. I believe it takes minimal regulations. I think it takes free trade. I think the right answer is free enterprise. But if it took government, I'd do government. Is I like all prosperity. regulation bad? No, of course not. You, you what, parts, what parts of uh, regulation? I was like, yeah, driving on the left, right hand side of the road. Come right, on. Okay. There you go. Okay, well, I wake up this morning, I want to reflect my freedoms and I want to drive on the left yeah. hand side of the road. No. What about Wall Street, 2006, 2007? There are. What you want to do is you, everyone knows there have to be regulations, but what you want to make sure is these regulations don't go beyond the specific purpose at hand and create collateral damage. Now, that's what they've done with this, uh, these bills in, uh, in Wall Street. Yes, you're always going to find a greedy guy. Mm -hmm. You always are going to find that. But if you spend all your resources trying to get the greedy guys and stop them, you're going to destroy everyone else. You got to have losses to be able to have profits. And remember that you can't protect everyone from not making losses. Otherwise, you destroy everyone from ever making profits. It's creative destruction, as Schumpeter put it, that creates a dynamic economy called America. Mm -hmm. And if we don't allow losses, you've got to be basically responsible for yourself. Yeah. You know, if someone's going to schlizzle you and take your money and steal it, yeah, you know, if he does it at gunpoint, there should be a law. But, you know, if you're silly enough to fall for these things, you've got to be careful on your own. I think the interesting one is that these crosswalks where all the drivers have to stop and the pedestrians think they have the right of way. Yeah. But when they get hit by a car, they'll find out which one has more power. <laughs> you know, you cannot take away from pedestrians the need for them to be careful. Yeah. Because the consequences to them of an interchange with a car is much more serious than it is with the driver of the car. Can I get real practical with you? Sure. Bush had some regulations that were not on Wall Street. A lot of people, there's reasons for 2007, 2008. There's a bunch of them. All government. Obama, All government. Obama enforced some regulations. Trump has taken those away. Are you for or against these regulations? I think on Trump Wall has Street? done a great job on the regulations. So he's actually deregulated Wall Street a little bit. Yeah, what you do is you have politicians who don't bear the consequences of their own actions. That's why I want to have politicians get merit pay. You know, that's the, fascinating. Oh well, if the economy grows at three percent per annum, they get their paycheck. That's fine. I'm fine with that. You think they'd be over focused on the economy? If it grows at four percent, that's what I hope they are. Yeah. If it grows at four percent, double their pay. Grows at five percent, triple their pay. Grows at 2%, no pay. Grows at 1%, they owe us the money that would have been their pay. <laughs> you know, they would no longer vote the stupid way they vote. That's very interesting. You know, what do you got to do is you've got to instill in everyone, you know, you've got to make them responsible for their own actions. Put politicians on commission and you'll get a great government, but they're always spending other people's monies with no consequences to them. It makes no sense. All right, let's talk about China. Let's yep, talk I like about my incentive economics. I actually like that a lot. I've never heard that, and I'm shocked I've never heard it. I've heard it with teachers. Incentivize well, everyone them, except incentivize government them economically. Official. It's called merit pay. Yeah. <laughs> Duh. I, I mean, has you, anybody ever proposed this? Yes, I have for years <laughs> with everyone. Uh, you but know, you were with Nixon and you were with Reagan. I've never proposed it with well. all of them. I, I, I mean, the one thing I've said is I want one more president where we can actually impose merit pay. This you, seems like something that Trump would actually light up if you told him about this idea. I, it's funny, I, fully I understands. Not yet, but I may well do it soon. Well, hopefully he's listening well, to the I podcast do, I, or something you know, like I, that. Well, I talk to him from time to time, and I've got my best friend in there with him, and Larry Kudlow. That would be a very appealing idea. Yeah, and once you've got politicians on merit pay, I don't mind them making a lot of money as long as I do too. Mm. What I really mind is them making a lot of money and everyone else going bankrupt, which is what it is now. Yeah, I mean, you hear these stupid comments that these people make. They'd never make those comments if it meant their job was lost. Yeah. <laughs> Don't you love, I mean, people really do care about themselves. If you think politicians are in there altruistically, oh, I want to do what's best for America, wah, wah, wah. No, they don't. They want to do what's best for them personally. 
And so let's make it so that if they do what's best for them personally, it's also good for us. I 100% agree with that. That's idea. why I want all the employees in publicly traded companies to have stock options. Hmm. You know, I want the CEO to be incentivized to make that company do well. Yeah. I was with a group of 150 investment bankers yesterday in New York City, and Eric Cantor was talking. And they did an informal poll on what do you think is the biggest challenge right now in the global economy? Now, there were representatives from China and Saudi Arabia and Qatar and, and everybody was in the room. And it was a very even spread, but at a slight, slightly larger percent than any other category, tariffs, taxes, these kinds of things, was social inequality. And that actually shocked me. Should. I, I thought, really, this room is worried about a discrepancy between the wealthy and the poor. And they didn't get into it. I, I was speaking well, yeah. next, and so I didn't have a chance to dive into it. I am curious, because I knew I was going to talk to you today. Good. I'm curious as to... Now, first of all, please understand, I'm on your side with this no, stuff. No, no, I'm not on any side on that. I love social equality, as long as it's free market driven. Right, so even in a and free market... And that's the way social equality comes about, by the way. And how does social equality happen in a free market system where there is opportunity? Let's imagine the, you have everyone destitute. Everyone. Got it. It's a poverty... Sub-Saharan African economy when everyone are living on dirt, catching worms under the rocks and all that. Gotcha. Stuff. And all of a sudden, one guy gets finds a neat way of increasing output and provides products and stuff like that, and he makes more money. Oh, my God, it's social inequality. Do you want to stop him from doing that? No. No. Now, I, want, I want other now, people looking well, no, at him and the, being incentivized and, and, and to follow be, his now lead. Now let's go to the other extreme. Uh, you've got everyone making lots of money and one guy really poor. Do you want social inequality? No. I want to make the poor people richer, but I do not want to make the rich people poorer. Let me ask a blanket statement. It's going to you be follow hard. me on yeah, that? I do. Let me ask a blanket question. It's going to be hard because I think people are curious. But I find your comment. I want to come back to your comment on who was in that audience because I've got a better one for you than that. Well, there's 150 investment bankers. Well, I've got a better one for you than that. Okay, let's go there. I was at Yale. I'm a Yaley, as, you, yeah, as yeah. you know, and family all the way back. And I did the Yale Political Union, and there is a very large group there who demands that people don't have privilege anymore. They think privileged people should have their privileges taken away, which I thought was absolutely spectacular being at Yale. Privileged people should have their privileges taken away rather than privilege being given to everyone. Yes. Yes, but these were all Yale undergraduates who are the most privileged people on earth, especially and, the ones... And idealistic and not pragmatist yet and because they haven't had to practice. And also totally against everything they are. Yeah, <laughs> speaking against themselves. That's, yes, that's, you know, that's privilege no, guilt. There or should whatever. be no scholarships or any of that. That's just providing privilege to people. I'm joking with you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's what these... I thought it was fairly ironic that at Yale with this superly privileged group, they're all espousing equality and no privilege. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know if you find that I, as funny as I did. I've but. never fully understood when, because I grew up dirt poor and now, you know, I'm wealthy and I've never understood when somebody says, well, Don, you're privileged. There's no question my path was easier than some other people's paths, but it was also a heck of a lot but, harder but than other people's paths. Let's, but let's the, not use it personally, but because I grew up privileged. My father was one of the top industrialists in America, ran the 95th largest company in America for 25 years. Yeah. My one grandfather was a brain surgeon at Western Reserve and also at the University of Vienna. My other grandfather started four steel companies. So we, I've been a privilege and went to prep school. You're using the word like you agree with it. There is privilege. I love privilege. I want my kids to be privileged. That's why I work so damn hard. We've got to break this down on the street level. What is your advice to somebody who's growing up in a poor home? They're 18 years old, and there's all this opportunity around them, but they've been told by certain people that you are not privileged and this person is privileged. I think that lies yeah, a cancer. They have been, you know, yeah, they have what, been aligned with all sorts of, of enablers, of peddlers. Of and they've been told why, they're a victim. Yes, they're always a victim, and once they believe they're a victim, they don't even try anymore. You know, it's because it's why? A, it, because they, they know they can't do it because they've been told they can't do it. Right. And then they find an example and they never can explain the example. But the reason I didn't get a job is because of my ethnic background or because of my height or my weight or, whatever, or where I lived. Are there leaders who are politically incentivized to keep a group of people down and be the victims so that they can play their nerves? That is a very nice narrative and it's maybe true. Uh, and you know, but you wouldn't I, go that far to say that. I find it very hard to imagine it's the villain. people it's you're villainizing. It's villainizing, and I don't like villainizing in general. 
and I don't believe the people you're describing who you would fit that category consciously think of doing that. I don't think they do, but they do it. You know, when you have too much welfare, you create the very welfare recipients you're trying to remove and give them the opportunity to come back into the mainstream. I did one back in LA, back 25, 30 years ago, 40 years ago. I took a family of four with no income whatsoever, two adults, two children, no unemployment benefits, nothing. And I said, what are the total amount of social welfare benefits that family can acquire with no income whatsoever living in Los Angeles, California at that time? Okay. All right? okay. I got that number. I said, then let's imagine one of the members of the family works and earns $100 gross. You have to pay the payroll taxes on it, the employer, the employee, then the income taxes. And also you have the needs test, means test, and incomes test to those people. So they lose some of their welfare benefits because they're now higher income. And I took it from zero to $1,000 a month. Now, back then, $1,000 a month was substantial. What happens to that family's total spending power going from zero earnings to 1000 a month? No unemployment benefits now. Unemployment benefits, you give me the end. It's almost 100% tax rate. Hmm. Because they lose so much of their welfare and they have to pay so much in their taxes on payroll and income taxes that the net effect is making $1,000 a month, you end up zero. So, today, you are, so a family four is incentivized to not work. Yes. Uh, today in Philadelphia, a woman with two children, single woman with two children, earns $29,000 a year. If she goes to earning $79,000 a year, her total income will be exactly the same. Mm-hmm. Because all the income she earns, all the programs she gets drop off, and she isn't eligible anymore. She has to pay all the taxes, Pennsylvania and federal, and she is in exactly the same position at $79,000 income as she was in 29000 Go tell me how that works for you. Yeah. You know, and you wonder, we are creating the very poverty. We are creating these people to being victims of the system because why, of our— Why are we doing it? Are there political well, incentives to see, I don't think—there are all sorts of political— because these guys aren't spending their own money. Right. They think they're buying votes. And it's your money they're spending, not my, not their own. And that's why I really want merit pay for politicians. But I also want to get rid of all this stuff and the earned income tax credit, which it sounds like such a wonderful thing. You know, get earned income tax credit and it increases your incentives to work up there. But when it gets cut off, what happens to your incentives? Hmm. Oh, they work the other way and they drive you right down. So they put a lid right on where you can be. Mm-hmm. That doesn't make sense. A low-rate, broad-based, flat tax, and if you want to help someone, write them a damn check. <laughs> Be transparent and write them. You well, know, I would also say you're not against all forms of welfare. You, there I'm are not against real welfare victims. at all. There are real, real victims. Real victims. Yes, of course yeah. there are. You're for a compassionate country. Well, of course not a, I'm for a compassionate country. I've got six children. How can you not be? Yeah. I mean, you got 13 grand. I just want to make that really clear, Art, because I no, think I don't want anybody to dismiss you. I don't care if they dismiss me or not. But I do, because I think you're right. I think we help well, more right. poor people but if we grow the economy into a robust machine. If they are looking machine. for such a reason to dismiss me, God bless them. It's their problem, not mine. I'm 78 years old. It's your country. <laughs> you look 50, by Well, the thank way. you very much there. But, but the <laughs> we'll truth, talk about diet and but exercise the truth next. Of, but the truth of the matter is, really seriously, we are creating the very poverty we're trying to cure with our welfare programs. Yeah. And if you do a low-rate, broad-based flat tax, collect the relevant amount of revenues you need, and then right, single mothers raising children, all right? Raising children on their own. Yes. We give them a, a tax credit, Okay. Why would you do a tax credit rather than writing them a check? There are probably some single mothers with two children who don't pay income taxes and therefore don't get the tax credit. Wouldn't it be much better just to direct the money right to single mothers with two children and pay them and get it transparent exactly what you're doing, bang, and they aren't sitting there getting lawyers and accountants and trying to figure out how to get that tax credit? Do you know how difficult it is to get unemployment benefits? How, much, how many loops you've got to go through to get it. And that bureaucracy costs an enormous amount, which makes enormous, you have to increase revenue. And it also revenue. costs the recipients a lot as well. Yeah. I mean, you've got all these people doing spending tons of money on lawyers, accountants, deferred income specialists, favor grabbers, lobbyists, all that stuff. And th- why is to it, avoid taxes? Is instituting a flat tax realistic? Well, we went... I mean, just... just, just to, when God still loved the world... <laughs> And Reagan was president. We went from fourteen tax. We went from fourteen tax brackets to two tax brackets. Yeah. Oh, was that possible? In that bill that we did, which was the eighty-six tax act, we dropped the highest marginal income tax rate from fifty percent to twenty-eight percent. We got rid of all these deductions, exemptions, and exclusions. We cut the corporate rate from forty-six to thirty-four percent. You got it. Yeah. You see what yeah, that bill yeah, was? Yeah. The vote in the Senate, ninety-seven to three. 
Wow. Wow. That wouldn't get a vote today. Not one. And yet we did it with 97 to 3. You know, everyone wants a fair, honest, decent, prosperous country. That's what you want is a low-rate, broad-based flat tax. Jerry Brown, I did his flat tax when he ran for president in 1992 against Bill Clinton. We went from eighth in the race to second in the race. He got rid of all federal taxes and had two flat rate taxes, one on business net sales of 13% and one on personal unadjusted gross income of 13%. That was Jerry Brown's. We went from eighth in the race to second in the race. We would have beaten Bill Clinton in the New York primary and the California primary. We just won Connecticut and we just won Oregon. We're coming into these when he announces Jesse Jackson as his running mate, which didn't go over very well. But we still got the second largest number of delegates in the Democratic primary. And Jerry Brown, I don't think you would argue as a super right-wing freakazoid. No. What, what happened then? Why has it gotten so out of hand in terms of the complication of our... It'll our, come back. It'll c- come because back. it has to? It will come yeah, back? Sure. Is that a doomsday you know, scenario? When people redistribute all the income until there's none left, then everyone starts to work again. Okay. <laughs> under Reagan, the debt started to increase. Continued increasing under... Well, Clinton balanced budget a little bit. Bush... No, Clinton g- reduced g- debt dramatically. Uh, because he had to. Let's make that no, really no, clear, no, right? I don't think Wasn't so. there a piece of legislation that made him do no, it? No, I think, well, we give Reagan credit for that, too. Because he mean, had we, the balanced budget amendment. No, we always give the president credit for what happens under right, his right, right, or yeah. her watch, okay? Yeah. We do that. Uh, you know, the Democrats helped Reagan a lot, and the Republicans helped Clinton a lot. Mm-hmm. So to try to parse the credits out, he doesn't deserve no, that. It's, it's not an immediate it's, deal. It's not a fruitful enterprise to do that. Clinton was a great president. I voted for him twice. I love that you're saying this because I think why? it's blowing categories in people's minds right why? now. I don't see why it would. Clinton was for tax because cuts Because people, people don't think in a very nuanced way when it comes to you or any sort of political category. Well, and so I the fact that you like, what did you like about Clinton's policies? I worked with Democrats policies? more than it. I was Gary Hart's pr- economist when he ran in 88. I mean, what do you want from me? That's what I love about you, Art, because it's, you're, you're about the numbers and you're about the, you're about the truth. And we're going to pursue the truth. If you're a truth. Democrat with tax cuts and pro-growth agenda, I'm with you. If you're a Republican, I'm with you. If you're a damn did, margin, I'm with you. What did Reagan do right? What did Clinton do right? Well, Clinton cut taxes dramatically. He cut government spending as a share of GDP. Yeah. Okay. By more than the next four best peacetime presidents combined. Hmm. I mean, really, huge three and a half percentage points. Clinton also got rid of the retirement test on Social Security. That's amazing tax cut on the elderly. Clinton also put in welfare reform. You actually have to look for a job to get welfare. Duh. How's that sort of cool? He cut the capital gains tax by the largest amount ever. I mean, it was amazing. I could go on. And, and the economy on. went nuts. Well, of course it did. He was a great president. Yeah. And as I told you, I voted for him twice. And he was great. And then you got uh, W and Obama, the twin bad ones. I mean, they were just, they're twins. They're just awful. They're just terrible. Like, who ever heard of a poor person spending himself into wealth? Have you ever heard of that? Hmm. And what, that, what, what do you mean by that? That's the stimulus packages. The government can stimulate the economy by spending other people's money on welfare and getting it. If you tax people who work and you pay people who don't work, do I need to say the next sentence yeah. to you? Come on, yeah. guys. If you have two locations, A and B, you raise taxes in B and you lower them in A. Producers and manufacturers are going to move from to, why'd you move to Tennessee? From Oregon. Hmm. You know, the next one, if you tax rich people and give the money to poor people, you're going to get lots and lots of poor people and no rich people. The dream in America has always been to raise the bottom, not to pull down the top. Economic growth is the sine qua non of prosperity for the poor and the rich. I'll be back with the rest of my interview with Art Laffer in just a moment. Listen, if you have hundreds and hundreds of employees and you want to teach them to clarify their message, there's a way to do that, and it's with our Train the Trainer program. We actually train your trainers to take your people through our framework, and it revolutionizes your whole company. My friend Dave Ramsey has 700 employees, not like the thousands that you may have, but all 700 employees, he wants to understand the framework because if they create any new marketing collateral, a website, lead generators, Dave wants to see the brand script first. He wants to see the clear message first. If they launch a new product, Dave wants to see the brand script first. If they're coming up with an event, Dave wants to see the brand script first. Anything they do that's new, he wants to see the brand script because when his people know how to create a clear message, they know who the customer is, they know what the customer wants, 
They know what the customer's problem is. They know how to position themselves as the guide in the customer's life. And they know how to call the customer to action to ask for the sale. If we haven't figured out those basics, good luck creating marketing that works. Good luck creating a product and actually selling it. Good luck having an event and having anybody there. Your entire team needs to be able to think and speak clearly about everything you offer. And the best way to do that is to teach them the story brand framework. The most economical way to teach them the story brand framework is for us to train your trainers. Go to storybrand.com slash corporate. That's storybrand.com slash corporate. Get in touch with us and we will set up a training for your facilitators today. That's storybrand.com slash corporate. Correct me if I'm wrong. I want to understand something a little bit. I would be in the 1% tax bracket. I'm paying 39 or something Congratulations. Percent. I, I hope your great. mom and dad are really happy. But I have great. friends who manage hedge funds who are not paying 39%. They're paying something like 11%. That's why. You... So when Bernie Sanders goes out and says, I think the wealthy should be taxed, the wealthy are taxed. They're taxed an enormous amount. But there is a disparity. Well, you should see my piece on Warren Buffett. He's not taxed. Well, I want to ask you about that. It's really some, a very, very small group of wealthy people who are actually not taxed. See, that's why you want a low-rate... okay? No, it's not. Okay, that's so why you want a low-rate, broad-based, flat tax, so there are no loopholes, deductions, exemptions, unrealized capital gains. Why shouldn't the increase in unrealized capital gains be taxed? And when it goes down, you get a credit. Why not? Will this... Why should you get deductions for $2 or $3 billion given to the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation? You don't have to pay the capital gains on that gift, and you get to deduct it from your income tax. Duh! I mean, that's not right. Hmm. You know, and especially when it's your family foundations, Bill and Melinda Gates and his two sons' foundation, his daughter's foundation. Now, it's legal. Why should he be able to have Berkshire Hathaway as a cover organization so when he buys and sells stocks, he does it below the Berkshire Hathaway there and doesn't have to pay capital gains on it because he doesn't buy and because sell he leaves it in the market and he doesn't know because pay he, does, on he owns Berkshire Hathaway stock and they do the trading gotcha there he's got an insurance company Berkshire Hathaway is an insurance company which means they get to deduct future expenses and you get to earn income on the deferred taxes all very legal and right. he would actually say it's all legal I'm doing it all right, and it shouldn't be happening. Warren Buffett would be on your side I, of well, this I argument. No, he wasn't. He wants to raise taxes that he doesn't pay. Oh, uh, gotcha. He doesn't ever suggest putting taxes on unrealized capital gains. I've never heard him talk. Does that hurt the economy to, to put taxes on unrealized well, capital gains? I said all taxes are bad, but when you have a low-rate, broad-based flat tax, you're doing the least damage imaginable to the economy to collect the requisite revenues to run government, which you need to run. What do we do about the, it may not like be a Jerry problem. Brown, Jerry Brown had the best tax plan ever. 13.1%. Well, he may, he, the, the number actually comes out 12% okay. to be static revenue neutral. He wanted a little bit more to reduce the debt and spend a little bit and have some fun. And, you know. <laughs> We're going to get to the debt in a second. I'm enjoying this conversation. It is. But I have to ask this question. It is happening in the world that some people, a very, very small number of people, actually have collected enormous amounts of wealth. Is that okay in your well, sure, system? If it's okay as long as it's as done long as in it's a fair, in the system and circulating. No, as long as it's done in a low-rate, broad-based, fair system. I mean, I don't mind a, a baseball player or an actress making a lot of money. Over a thousand years, would it happen that you know? Oh, you find that the wealth does not stay with those families for long. How does it circulate then? How does it get back into the economy? <laughs> the kids blow it. <laughs> it's, I mean, you've seen all the stories about the famous baseball players and basketball <laughs> players who make billions and what happens to them after yeah. five years, they lose it all. You know, this is why you can't protect everyone from everything. And, you know, I don't mind them making it and I don't mind them having it. And it's wonderful that they get rewarded for doing great things. Love to see a few physicists get the same type of rewards and a few mathematicians and especially one economist. I'd love to see get it, but, <laughs> but it's the way the system works and it's the way it should work. And sometimes you get those rewards because you're good looking. Sometimes you get the rewards because you're at the right place at the right time at the right moment. Sometimes you get those rewards because you work hard. And you know, you can't distinguish those rewards, but if you have the system in place, let it run. And that's why we are so good. Now, will it make lots and lots of mistakes? Of course it will. But if you think government intervention won't make more mistakes, you're yeah. a different person yeah, than I am. There's always going to be. There's always going to be. It's not that free system. enterprise is right. 
It's that everything else is wronger. <laughs> okay. Talk to me about the national debt. Yes, sir. It's increasing 83% faster, supposedly, under Trump because we lowered taxes, did not decrease spending. We did not shrink the government. I don't know if you saw Rand Paul's rant in Congress. It was wonderful. He's got some harebrained ideas, but that was an amazing rant. Basically, he said, look, we just decreased taxes. We did the right thing. We did not decrease spending, and you call yourselves Republicans. It was a fascinating speech given on Congress floor. Uh, I think it was about three months ago. Our debt is going crazy. Is it out of hand? Should it be something that we're worried about? Warren Buffett isn't worried about it. Are you worried about it? Sure, I'm worried about it. Okay. The debt is a consequence of bad policies, not a bad policy. Is it hurting the country? Is it making us weak? But let me just say that it's a consequence of bad policies. Now, how do you reduce the debt? We all know you have to. I'll tell you, you cannot reduce the debt by having everyone unemployed and not earning income and not paying taxes. I hope I'm not going to no, 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 no. That doesn't, so have, doesn't work. What you need to do is create a political economy of growth. What you find is that the CBO estimates that if the economy grows at 1.9% over the next decade, the national debt will go from 73 or 74% of GDP to 100% of GDP. Hmm. Ow. Ow. Now, if we grew the economy 1% more, just 1% more, from instead of 1.9 to 2.9, well, what would happen? Let me just see. What I want to do is if you grow mm-hmm. faster, all right, we're going to collect more in revenues than we otherwise would. Right. There'll be less tax sheltering. There'll be less tax evasion. There'll be less locating companies on foreign People shores. People won't be going to Ireland. Be, you got it. All that stuff will happen, which has nothing to do with growth. It has just to do with personal incentives. You won't hire as many lawyers, accountants, deferred income, all that stuff. You'll pay your taxes instead of trying to shelter it. All of that will happen. The economy will grow faster, so the denominator will be bigger. GDP will be bigger. The deficit will be smaller. And the national debt as a share of GDP will fall to about 50% of GDP by adding 1% to growth. And you really didn't even pay down the debt. You just increased the GDP. Oh, no, you do pay down the debt. You do pay down some of it. Well, from where it is. You reduce your deficits dramatically. I don't know whether you reduce them to zero or not. But you collect a lot more revenues and you reduce the debt to GDP ratio dramatically. I don't know if you run a balanced budget. I, I should look at that. Yeah. I haven't. But this is just the calculations correctly but, but a, using but, the CBO numbers. But an numbers. unbalanced budget, if you will, doesn't scare you. It doesn't frighten you. It doesn't. Well, because, you know, the average family it freaks them out. So should it freak out the average country? Well, it, it depends on how unbalanced and where it is. I mean, you know, when you use your debt like we did with Reagan to create economic growth, prosperity and stuff. Let me give you the example this way. I'm going to lend you all you want at 2% and let you invest all you want at 10%. Hmm. How much should you borrow? Uh, you should borrow a lot. A lot. Now, reverse those numbers. I'm going to let you borrow all you want at 10%. You should not take that loan. Yes. The amount of debt you should have and the amount of deficits you should have depends on your spread. If you can borrow at a much lower rate than you're lending at, then you should borrow more. If you borrow at a much higher rate than you're lending at, you should borrow less. Now, what do you do with the government funds that you use? Are you going to pay people not to work? Or are you going to create opportunities for people right. to work out? What we did was we were like a venture fund with Reagan. We borrowed a lot. We ran a big deficit. That's true. And we built on the infrastructure. We cut tax rates. We created enormous economic growth. Now, the measure I would use, all right, is what happened to U.S. wealth versus our national debt. Now, if the U.S. wealth grows a lot more it than the national of course it exploded. It was the best use of debt ever. And look at it under Trump. Have you seen what's happened to the U.S. wealth in this country since Trump has taken office? You look at the stock market, housing prices, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's the greatest use of debt to cut that tax. It's a wonderful what he's done to deregulate all of that. So I would beg you not to be monomaniacal and looking at debt to GDP. Look at what happens to wealth, American wealth from debt. And what you're finding out when we use debt here with Trump, wealth goes way, way up. When we use it with Obama and W, it goes way, way down. <laughs> That's fascinating. But with Reagan, it went through the ceiling. That's what you want. Yeah. You're here to make people wealthier and have higher incomes and have lower unemployment and be happier. Get along with each other. You know, kumbaya, that sort of stuff. Because you were under Reagan, I think he had some unique ideas, Shining City on a Hill and these kinds of things. Should America be the wealthiest country in the world? And if so, why do you think so? I believe that every country should strive to be the best country they in the should, world. Everybody should compete, but we happen to be Americans. We happen to be really cool at this. Is there something about 
our way of doing life. There and was, I, and, I, and I believe there is. I think well, the Constitution. Let, let, me, let me hold you back up just a second. Has a check. There and was something that we did that was special that made us the wealthiest country in the world. I have this problem with when I talk to Sub-Saharan Africans on their tax authorities and their government. Right. But we don't want to do just what you do in America. I said, no, 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 stop right there. What you should do is what we did to become rich, hmm. not what we do now that we are rich. You know, what was total taxation? Government spending as a share of GDP in 1910. Well, I wouldn't know. The income tax came in in 1913. That's when we did the Federal Reserve. That's when big government came in. In 1910, total government spending as a share of GDP was less than 3%. That's amazing. Yeah, that's why we became rich. Now, once you become rich, you can give lots of money away and do lots of stuff because you're rich. But poor people can't afford to behave like rich people or they'll stay poor forever. What you've got to do if you're poor is do what the rich people did before they were rich and how they became rich. Right. Do you understand that? Yes. Well, you you got to do what you did, not what I do. Right. <laughs> I'm privileged. I've been rich all my life. My parents, my grandparents, all the way back. You came from a poor family. God bless you. You did what you needed to do to become rich. Now, make damn sure your kids know how to stay rich. Mm. It's not the same thing, by the way. Staying rich is a very different thing than becoming rich. Speaking of staying rich, potential trade war with China, renegotiation potentially of NAFTA. The Chinese economy is growing. They've got their problems, too. Remember, I was the first one that went to China in 1970. So talk to me about... One of the questions, Eric Cantor and the group of investor bankers yesterday that I was with in New York, there was some disagreement in the crowd, but they said, how are we going to feel about America being the second biggest economy in the world? And there was some disagreement about whether that was even true. Can I true. ask you a question about you? But, yes. When I look at you, should I be really unhappy that you've become rich? No. Why not? Damn it, now I'm not as rich Because all ships speaking. rise with the tide. Oh, well, why not Chinese ships, too? So you're okay. You, uh, this is very interesting. So you don't see it as a zero-sum game no, the way I, some people do. I think China's way our biggest ally. Do. Well, I don't care what they think. It, they're wrong. China's our biggest ally. You get so many gains from trade, trading, trading with the Chinese. It's wonderful. They and we, they make some things better than we do. Well, th- it sounds and like we make some things better than they do. Trump sees it as zero-sum. It certainly sounds that way. You know, we'll see. He hasn't done anything yet. No, yeah. Now, do I think the trade agreements that they've got out there are good? No. They aren't. NAFTA should be rewritten. And China has a lot more protectionist policies against us than we do against them. And they should drop those protectionist policies. Hmm. But should we do a trade war with China? Hell no. That'd be the dumbest thing I can imagine. You know, their trade surplus, which is our trade deficit, is also our capital surplus and their capital deficit. Do you realize they're producing a lot more goods than they're using internally in China and they're sending those factories over to the US to employ Americans? What's wrong with that? We ran trade deficits from 1647 until 1860. Every year except for three or four, all right? Every year we built our country in foreign capital. What's wrong with that? We were the place where everyone wanted to put their capital and we still are. The only way foreigners can invest in the U.S. net is by us having a trade deficit. I take a factory in Mexico, employing 100 Mexicans. Yeah. Okay. The guy says, my God, that guy Trump just cut taxes in the U.S. Wow. The guy closes his factory in Mexico, puts all of his machines on a truck, drives them over into the U.S., and opens up the factory in Colorado, where he's now employing Americans. Do you like that? I love it. Well, by moving that factory across the U.S.-Mexican border, that's a Mexican export... That's a Mexican trade surplus. By moving it into the U.S., that's a U.S. import. That's a U.S. trade deficit. We got to stop those trade deficits now, don't we? Mm. Don't be dumb. Mm. The best thing in the world is a trade deficit. Under Reagan, we had the best growth ever, did we not? We had a strong dollar through a dollar doubled in value during that period, and our trade deficit increased enormously. So all the fear-mongering books about the rise of China are just that. They're, it's fear-mongering. Well, why it's... would you hate China? I, just any more than I'd hate you. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're in this tub together, guys. I mean, it's a rising tide. We live in a world. I want to see North Korea prosper by getting rid of their nuclear weapons and joining the planet Earth and removing all the sanctions. I want to see that with Cuba, too. And they seem to be doing that. North Korea seems to be doing I that. I think Trump's doing a fantastic On job with North policy. Korea. I think he's doing a fantastic job with economic policy so far, too. If he does a trade war, that'll be the first mistake I think he's done. And I think that might be a big one. 
Well, you heard it here first. Art Laffer, pro-Trump, pro-Clinton, <laughs> anti-Bush. Pro-Reagan, pro-Reagan. Pro oh, my God. Pro-Kennedy. How can he do that? Pro-Coolidge. Oh I don't think Lord. we're going to be able to put you in a category. Final question. If you, yes, you could... Can. Tax cut category. Tax cut, yeah. <laughs> Pro-growth category. Thank you. Well, you may have just answered the question. If you could move the levers a little bit, if you could do, say, three things with economic policy in America, sweeping broad things implemented tomorrow, what do you do? The first one, which would solve all the other problems, is merit pay for politicians. That's a beautiful That's when you, That one does it. Then you want to do the low-rate, broad-based flat tax. 13% about, 12%, whatever. Whatever the number is, you can calculate and get it there. Or moving towards it. Flat tax for everybody. Everyone the at every category. Through, through and have Bill it all Gates. collected by businesses. So you have a value-added tax, flat one. You have Corporate tax is the same as personal deduction tax. Deduction right out there. They're all the same so you don't get all this arbitraging of tax rates and trying to find shelters and movement and all that silly stuff that Warren Buffett The tax does. code goes from a Bible-sized book to a pamphlet. Yeah, to a little pamphlet with yeah. big print. <laughs> big wide margins, well spaced. Gotcha. Uh, low That's rate number two. Low rate broad based flat tax, spending yep. restraint. And how do you restrain spending? What piece of legislation would keep us well, from that? The merit pay is the best one of all. Yeah. But what you just do with budget limits. We kind of have budget limits, right? No, nah, we don't. Are you for the shutting down of the government every time we hit one of these things? I don't know what that means. Uh, shutting down the government. You're a little pain. Uh, but a little pain to whom? To, it's not paying to, to me. American workers, sadly. Yeah, I don't know if it goes to American workers. It depends on what they shut down. I mean, down. if they work for the government, it of does. Of course, what the government's going to do, if it's a left-wing government like Obama, they're going to shut down all the good things. And then they, they end and up giving it, everybody paid time off because they pay them back later when they come back to work. This drives me crazy. It's, it's, just, it's not an actual so, so, shutdown so of the government. So you just answered that question. Yeah, okay. So. All right, but number three. Number three, minimal regulations. You know, we need regulations, but minimal to stop the collateral damage done by regulations. Right. Free trade. Total free trade. We have free trade now, right? Or is there no, no, we there don't. limits no, we on free don't. trade? Oh, tons of limits. NAFTA's on got some. Oh yeah, and Chi Japan pain and all this. Japan, all the non-tariff barriers are not included in any of the discussions. Currency manipulations has been removed from all the discussion tables. So all of the serious prohibitions on free trade have all been removed from discussions by those countries. If there was complete free trade, would China be our labor force? Would that happen? No. Would we be intellectual people working with computers and no, products no, are actually made everywhere else? I don't see why that would be the case. I'm just curious. I mean, if they became more proficient than we are, but I don't see any reason why America can't continue to do better. Yeah. Look, we grew a lot. Are we just the labor force of all of the Europeans now? Mm. I've got right in my other room there, which you can. My great-great-grandfather brought over from Prussia. His book, The Versemplik of Erika Friedrich Schiller, or the collected works of Friedrich Schiller, published in the old German script and everything like that, is really way cool. He brought it with him, his favorite books, leather bound, I mean neat, and it opened up the front page and it says, published in Philadelphia. <laughs> That's free trade. Yeah. His Prussian books were made in the U.S. Yeah. <laughs> What's wrong with that? Yeah. Okay. It's round cool. What's next? No, I don't know. We got them. What, we spending restraints, sound money. We need to have sound money. Free trade, low-rate, broad-based flat tax, and minimal regulations. That'll do it. I love it. Art, thank you so much. It's my pleasure. Thank you very much. There's so much more I wanted to talk to him about. Yeah, I, bet. I, I really wanted to talk to him more about China. I wanted to talk to him about trade wars. Yeah. I want to talk about global currency, how it works. We didn't get into Bitcoin. Oh, yeah. I, there, oh, that I, there's been just amazing. so much more. And well, he's so and charming. Anybody and so fun. who has access, like, you know, not to quote Lynn Manuel, but is in the room where it happens. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. somebody who's in the room where stuff is like being discussed at that kind of level is there's so much to ask them. And there's so much that they know that those interviews could go on forever. What got me about this interview, though, and I'm not saying he's right. I don't know if he's right. Yeah, yeah. I'm quite yeah. honestly, you know, I just don't know. Yeah. But I, I think he's on to something and has been on something, and it's been proven yeah. that everybody needs to pay more and more attention to it. We don't need to be confused about it. And this whole idea of trickle-down economics having and supply-side economics being a derogatory term yeah i think no you got to come back to the table here and you got to talk about this you yeah. got to say are we incentivizing poverty or are we incentivizing wealth yeah. or you know those are important questions that i think people get offended by and their emotions turn on and therefore we don't actually talk about the problem and solve more and more problems related to poverty I, he seemed like the doctor who was prescribing something the patient didn't want to hear yeah sometimes yeah you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, hey, here's what you got to do. You know, you got to exercise more. You got to eat right. And we're kind of going, but this guy over here is telling me I can yeah. eat a bunch of pizza and 
I think he kind of is in that position uh, well, sometimes. But and also, it just sounds so. There's so much doubt when you say the best thing for the poor is to give the wealthy money. And but the idea of a flat tax, twelve, thirteen percent across the board, simplify the tax code. It's very appealing to me. Yeah, I bet you we spend as a business fifty to seventy-five thousand dollars a year to file taxes. Yeah. Not in taxes. That's astronomical. Yeah. Just to figure them out. Yeah. And then the stress involved in that is a burden. Yeah. It's a burden on everybody listening to this podcast. I know it burns a lot of calories in our brains to think about yeah. it. Yeah. But it's worth thinking about. JJ, thanks for putting up with me on this. No, you were you're, <laughs> you were geeking out about it like when I was. the interview happened, and I was so excited for you. Well, it's fun. I love thinking about this stuff, and he gave me a bunch of stuff I want to write about later so that I can write a book that uh, I will read. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I will go, ew. <laughs> Probably. And then I'll say, but JJ, come on, I listen know, actually, to me. You Let me explain. Get me. You, you force me to, honestly, <laughs> this kind of stuff forces me to think about stuff. A lot of times I want to just kind of push away as bipartisan or something like that. And it really forces me to sit down and genuinely think about stuff that I need to be thinking about. And yeah, I'm just not attracted I'm, to partisan yeah, that, language of any kind. Exactly. I'm but just not. And that's what I appreciate about him is yeah. he really genuinely is about the numbers and about the economy and about the American people like raising up together and it's not bipartisan and it's so easy for me to write things off quickly with some of that language that I know that I should be thinking deeper I, about. It's part of my internal dream to create a movement of people who are simply good-hearted pragmatists Yeah. Yep. and who don't fall for the tribal politics yep. that we are just inundated with. It's a trick. It's a yep. trick. Yep. It gets people elected so that they can basically go and do pragmatic work that hopefully helps the country. Yep. And some people who are very good at tribal politics are such black and white thinkers, are so simple, they actually get into office and they can't do the job because they're yep. incapable of nuanced thinking anyway. Yep. Anyway, this was a long interview. Thanks, everybody, for listening to it. I will only burn you with this stuff once <laughs> every quarter or something, <laughs> but thanks for it's paying attention. Stuff. Music from this episode is by Andrew Bell. You can listen to Andrew's new record, Dive Deep, on Spotify or iTunes. My book, Building a Story Brand, is available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, wherever you buy books. It will help you clarify your message so the words you use get a return. Building a Story Brand available wherever you buy books. Thanks as always for listening to the Building a Story Brand podcast where we believe if you confuse, you'll lose. Noise is the enemy and creating a clear message is the best way to grow your business. <laughs>